Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Fabio Rambelli, who is the editor of the new edited volume, Spirits and Animism in Contemporary Japan, published by Bloomsbury Academic Publishing in 2009. Professor Rambelli, welcome to the show. Hello, Degenia. It's good Great. to be here. Thank you. Um, Professor, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. So how did you become interested in Asian studies and specifically in Japan? Oh, that is a long story. And uh, it happened many years ago. Um, I was living in Europe at the time, and uh, I thought I wanted to have a chance to explore other places. And Japan sounded like a good option. It really started like that. And then I went to college and took uh, at the University of Venice in Italy. And I took uh, Japanese studies as my major. It was like a <laughs> big decision at the time. And I got really fascinated by all these different aspects of Japanese culture, and especially religion and you know the philosophies, the ways of thinking, the intellectual history of Japan. And that's how it started. Oh, wow. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so maybe tell us something about the collaboration um, in the Edda volume, Spirits and Animism in Contemporary Japan. So how did it start? Oh, uh, it's a kind of, a, in many ways, it's a fortuitous story because, um, okay, now let, let me backtrack for a moment. Um, I've always been interested in this issue of animism and the spirits because whenever you go to Japan, I mean, they're everywhere. Um, they are in the media, they, on TV. Uh, of course, they're part of religiosity. They're part of some aspects of public discourse. Uh, Japanese identity is defined also, also in terms of animism. So it's always been something you know, on the back of my mind. I normally work on pre-modern um, uh, religion and, 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 and philosophies, right? But, uh, but again, this is something that is uh, contemporary, is part of Japan today. And they claim, uh, not only in Japan, but also elsewhere, you know, that it's something that is deeply traditional, you know, that's back from the past. So it was a big question mark for me, you know, this, where does this thing come from? Because again, working on pre-modern religiosities, you don't really see um, animism described as it is today. So I, I really don't see the connection between traditional practices and beliefs and uh, what is being uh, done today. They also don't have a term for animism in pre-modern Japan. I mean, that is, uh, you know, they, they imported the English, the English word for that. So, so this is, you know, the, the, the background information. Then uh, in 2017, um, here at the University of California, Santa Barbara, you know, we happen to have like four scholars of, of Japanese religions and intellectual history. Uh, in addition to myself, there was uh, Karina Roth from Geneva. There was Andrea Castiglioni, who's now in Nagoya. There was uh, Ellen Van Houten from Kyushu University. So I, th- I, th- I thought, you know, this is a nice way. You know, we already have four people. We can just invite a few other people and we do something on different aspects of, um, of the culture of spirits. And so we had a, a small conference, which uh, I think was very successful. It was very interesting. It was a very nice vibe among the participants and then um and then i decided to you know to, to to put the papers together into an edited volume i asked uh 
a couple of other people who could not make it to the conference to contribute their own chapters. And, and that's how the book started. So I think that the originality of this particular, uh, well, the conference first and the book in particular, is that it's not only scholars of uh, uh, religion. Precisely because the discourse of animism in contemporary Japan is not a religious discourse per se. Of course, you have new religions doing that. You have uh, some traditional religions also using, you know, uh, interactions with spirits as as one of their forms of, you know, interacting with the sacred. But uh, the idea of, you know, spirits and animism are really part of a, of pop popular culture. You find them in anime, you find them in literature, you find them in the new artistic expressions and so forth. So in the conference and the book, I decided to also involve uh, either artists or people who are studying uh, artistic expressions like architecture, for example, or, uh, or new uh, media uh, or uh, literature, right? And, um, and then see how ideas of animism are actually embodied in those uh, particular uh, art forms. So in a way, it is a very multi, uh, interdisciplinary, uh, multidisciplinary uh, project. Yeah, from just from looking at the chapters, it seems like it's, it's a very diverse and vibrant um, collection of contributors. So let's talk about um, the book. It seems, you know, from the introduction that spirits are everywhere in Japan, right? From the Yasukuni shrine to anime or popular culture and literature. Um, and you, you, you also introduced the term invisible empire. So can you tell us a little bit about what these spirits exactly are and how have scholars tried to explain these presences? Huh. You see, that was the most difficult part of the book. And that's why we have so many collaborators working on very different aspects. Because, um, see, an interesting thing that, I, that we realized when we were working on this is that people talk about spirits and animism as if these were simple and easily understandable uh, concepts. You know, animism, everybody knows what it, is, what it means. And in fact, uh, that's not true. I mean, there are different types of animism, different set of beliefs. Uh, that are kind of subsumed under this large uh, and vague notion. And the same is true for spirits. There are different types of spirits. And so that was one of the main difficulties. I mean, how can we talk about these terms without really uh, exploding, you know, uh, explode them and render them uh, uh, basically useless? And uh, so so this was the the, the main challenge. Uh, Well, the term invisible empire... You see, I was I was referring to to the Empire of Science by by Roland Barthes, because the main uh, you know the famous book you know by the semiotician Roland Barthes who, who wrote about Japan, and uh, the main idea behind the Barthes book is that Japanese culture is characterized by the, the, the empty center. This is what he calls it. You know, so it's basically according to Barthes in Japan there are only signifiers. There is no central. No solid signified, you know. There is no master signified, and um, and to me that was interesting because again the spirits too are this kind of ectoplasmic uh, entities that may or may not exist or may or may not affect uh, the visible and the material, right? But um, so in a way they're kind of nice representations in, in a way, right? Of this of this empty. Uh, empty center that Bart uh, the Bart describes. This is not what he means at all, right? But you know, you 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 can force his his description a little bit and and, and get that. 
Uh, also, the idea of, the, of, of, of an empire, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a complex organization. So, of course, you know, there are different types of spirits who play different roles, uh, roles in it. Then, after I came up with this, with this term, I checked for some reason on, uh, on Google, and I found out <laughs> that it's related to all kinds of conspiracy theories in the United States. And so <laughs> I, di- I didn't even want to mention that because I didn't want to be quoted, you know, in those, in those, in those you know, links. But, um, yeah, uh, so I guess it can mean different things in different places, I suppose. But that's what spirits are about anyways. It's certainly a really interesting term. And, and you also kind of mentioned that um, it could also be seen as a sophisticated exercise in what you would call a passionate Orientalism or perhaps a reverse reverse Orientalism, uh, uh, yeah. which is the, um, I quote you here, the acceptance in a Western context of Orientalist theme developed in the East. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Um, yeah, um, it may sound a bit confusing, but the... Uh... The history of the interactions between Japan and several Western countries, you know, has always been uh, characterized by by the resonance, the mutual resonance of stereotypes and misunderstandings about each other. So Westerners went to Japan and and, and they had their own orientalistic ideas about about Japan, right? Then the Japanese absorbed them as they were kind of objective representations and ad- adopted adapted and adopted them to themselves. And um, and then they came up with the Occidentalism, you know, like Japanese understanding of the West based on the Western understanding of the East. And, and so this is one aspect of it. The other aspect is that, um, and to me, I think it is crucial in, the, in uh, when, when we study Japan in particular, is that um, Orientalism, especially as it applies to Japan, is never kind of a monolithic and kind of oppressive discourse that kind of diminishes and, uh, and um, basically offends uh, the other. A lot of, uh, of descriptions about Japan are really characterized by, by the quest for the other, by a fascination with something that is supposedly different. Maybe the, the problem there is that they overemphasize the, different, you know, the difference of Japan. But, but, but the idea is that um, Japan is a kind of utopia. Japan is a kind of a extremely desirable and, and beautiful and amazing place. So that is the kind of positive Orientalism that, that, that encourages, actually, uh, a deeper study and a deeper understanding. So I think that the discourse of animism uh, plays an important role in that because both the Japanese and uh, and the non-Japanese who are interested in that see tend to see animism today as a positive thing. Maybe a hundred years ago that was negative, right? That was an aspect of paganism, of superstition, and things like that, and they needed to be to be eliminated. But today, uh, animism is normally seen uh, in positive terms, you know, as like a, like a deeper understanding of reality or. Uh, um, uh, a love and appreciation for nature, which uh, is lost in uh, in uh, other countries, especially in the West. I'm not saying that that is true, but I'm saying that that is uh, the beginning, you know, it's the starting point of of a deeper appreciation of a different culture with with different relations with the invisible. And and to me, that is that is an interesting aspect that I think the book uh, also uh, addresses. All right, thank you for clearing that up. Um, and 
you know, Japan, it's surprising that in a country like Japan, known as for its high degree of secularization, technological advancement, and social developments, um, ontological assumptions about spirits can be so deeply ingrained in the cultural fabric um, in popular culture and everywhere. Um, so how is a seeming paradox reconciled in Japan if it is indeed seen as a paradox? Huh. See, that is interesting because I don't think that in Japan, most people or many people, I mean, this, this is hard to quantify, right? But from the public discourse, from what you see uh, going on, uh, not many people see this as a contradiction, that technological advances can be uh, reconciled or at least they're not in contradiction with... Uh, with um, with this kind of care for a supposedly invisible uh, dimension of reality. Um, and so you have uh, even authors theorizing, you know, the, the, the fact that uh, machines and computers and objects have a potential type of soul and spirit. Maybe we can talk a little more about that later, but um, I see many, in many uh, ways, uh, attempts to um, reconcile these two different aspects, you know, the technological and the pre or non-technological, the, 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 the very modern and futuristic, perhaps, and, uh, and something that is considered to be uh, traditional uh, from the past. So maybe it may, be, it may look like a contradiction to us, but in Japan... Um, that that is not seen as a, as a contradiction, but I think it's also because again animism and and this kind of spirit entities are not clearly defined, so that kind of helps you know avoiding conflicts of interpretation. I see, and and this is an important point. Uh, let's just dwell on this a little bit. Um, in the introduction, you also said that. Uh, modernization uh, in Japan may have reduced the interest of many Japanese for specific Buddhas and Kamis, but massive state propaganda in favor of ancestor worship, emperor worship, and the cult of past heroes and the war dead actually promoted a widespread idea that the dead continue to exist in some kind of form in this world. This is a really interesting phenomenon, sort of combining modernization on one hand um, you know, inspired by Western sciences and developments, but also this promoted worship of the invisible. Can you speak about this a little bit? Hmm. You see, the importance of the ancestors, well, the ancestors have always been important in, uh, in Japan. Well, no, I shouldn't say so, in fact. I mean, we have a chapter by, the first chapter in the book by Sato Hiro, uh, makes it clear that ancestors were not really important until maybe the Edo period. Uh, or maybe the 15th century for for most people, you know, aristocratic families, uh, some you know leading clans and so forth and so forth. Of course, they had uh, some type of of uh, ancestor cult, but uh, but the role of the ancestors uh, become uh, becomes really important only in the Edo period uh, for a number of reasons. So so this is something that needs to be emphasized um, and. Uh, and the idea, see, the importance of the ancestors means that, okay, to me, I think that this is, an, uh, this is probably the central aspect of the ancestors' worship, is the fact that by worshipping the ancestors, literally, the ancestors are still present in this life. They're not dead, and they continue to influence what is going on in the present. So that establishes a very strong continuity between the past and the present. And the idea is that the present and the future can be contained and oriented, right? 
based on models and precedents uh, set up in the past. This is the, you know, the typical idea of traditional societies. Whether that was actually the case or not, I mean, of course, it's debatable because, you know, we see a lot of social and cultural change even in, in traditional societies and especially in Japan in, pre, in, early modern, in the early modern period. But, but the idea is that the dead are pretty much present and they are able to orient and direct the present and the future. So when it comes to state propaganda, of course, we have the past emperors, we have past heroes, and those will all become models uh, for, for action now and, and again in the future. So you have this overwhelming presence of the past, which is no longer visible, but is made very solid, right? So I think that this is an aspect, you know, the fact that these, you know, the dead and the invisible, maybe not all of them, but only some of them are important and they need to be uh, dealt with. On a different level, you also see... So how to deal with your own family ancestors, you know, that becomes a, a, a problem, right? Because if they're not state heroes. So I think, I think there, there was a potential conflict there. And, uh, and Yasukuni Shrine may have been a, a way to kind of, um, because so many people died in war, right? Uh, as part of the military or in, uh, in, you know, in, in relation to that. So that could have been a way to uh, include a lot of uh, regular dead into this kind of official sanctioned uh, state uh, pantheon of spirits and heroes. Um, but I think one of the arguments that I put forth in the book is that uh, contemporary interest for spirits and animism is really different from this kind of state uh, cult of heroes and, and, uh, and ancestors. So maybe we can talk a bit more about that later if, you, if you're interested in it. Oh, great. Definitely. Um, we have a few questions that address this issue. Um, and just to maybe dwell on the term spirits and um, animism. Um, so in the volume, you also warned about the risk of collapsing and confusing or conflating these two categories uh, of spirits and animistic worship of nature. Um, so for example, the dead um, of, let's say, war heroes, um, are these considered spirits? Um, and if so, then what does animistic worship of nature or animism entail in the context of Japanese spirituality? Hmm. Yeah, I think this is one of the central uh, problems when we study uh, well Japanese religious in part- and, and Shinto in particular, because their idea of uh, divinity, of kami, uh, very often intersects with the idea of spirit, which is tama or tamashi. And, uh, and each of these two categories, especially kami, they are incredibly broad uh, categories that cover all kinds of phenomena. So, for example, um, you have uh, kami that are mountains. So the mountain itself is a kami. It's not that the mountain is the abode of the kami. The mountain itself is a kami. Or the waterfall itself is a kami. So this is one thing. And then you have um, you have trees or... Uh, buildings, you know, shrines that are temporary abodes of, of, of kami. So the kami go there, stay there, and whenever they want, they leave. So these two, I think, the kami as a mountain or the mountain as a kami is one type of god that is different from a flying invisible god that sticks to a tree. Uh, so ontologically, I think these are, and phenomenologically, these are very different entities. And then you have the kami 
um, uh, uh, as described in the ancient myths. Those are different things. Again, those are not mountains. I mean, those are kind of humanoid or anthropomorphic uh, beings described in the mythology. And then you have people, historical individuals, who have been deified for you know, a whole number of reasons. But again, these deified beings are not the same as the kami as described in the ancient mythology. So again, we have a, another different category of kami here. And then, and then you have regular people now who are deified simply by performing a Shinto funeral. You know, they're given the title Mikoto, uh, the posthumous title Mikoto. So, uh, so in name, they are exactly the same as, as the ancient kami in the mythology, but in fact, they are different. Nobody would ever confuse, you know, Susanoo or, or Amaterasu with, uh, with my grandfather. So, um, so we have so many different types of kami, some of them are invisible. Some of them are formerly <laughs> visible because they were human beings and are no longer visible because now they're kind of more spiritual entities. And then you have visible kami, like rocks or or mountains, and they're visible because they're there, right? So this is very confusing. You cannot say the Mount Miwa is a spiritual entity because it's a mountain. And um, so I'm not even sure, for example, that uh, worshiping a mountain as a kami is a form of animism. Because you're not, wor- you're not worshiping any specific soul in that mountain. You're worshiping the mountain as a kami, as a whole, right? So to me, that's closer, perhaps, to uh, like these, you know, older and and um, very complicated and uh, you know to deal with a concept of fetishism, you know, in the original term, not in terms of you know uh, sexual fetishism, but in the fact that objects or entities, material entities have an agency in themselves. There is no split between, you know, the, the, the invisible spirit and the, and the material, uh, how can we put it, the material uh, box, container, right, that, that contains the spirit. So that's why I think that uh, a concept of animism is not really enough to describe what goes on in terms of uh, the agency of... Uh, invisible entities on the one hand and the agency of visible and material entities on the other. And those two agencies, uh, which can be articulated in, in you know, more complex ways, but these two agencies are normally conflated into a, like a, what I think is a simplistic vision of, of animism and spirits. Well, thank you for clearing this up because, yes, these two terms uh, in certain, you know, contexts seem to be uh, conflated. And certainly in popular culture um, um, about or on Japan um, and the spirits of Japan. So speaking of animism in Japan, you covered briefly the history of animism and you also led us to the development of what is called the Japanese neo-animism. Um, so you argue that the accounts of animism written by Japanese intellectuals such as Iwata Kenji were attempts at creating a different description of Japanese spirituality in ways that were unrelated to wartime state Shinto and its authoritarianism. And they tried to reframe Shinto in a broader context that also includes Taoism and Southeast Asian folk traditions. So what does this reframing project entail? What are they trying to do here? If you look at the at the, at the like state propaganda, for example, or state Shinto, uh, like we said before, uh, their focus was on the worship of the emperor, heroes, 
and uh, and family ancestors, uh, you know, because the family was considered as one of the main uh, components of society, right? Uh, they didn't really pay a lot of attention, at least as as state Shinto, right? They didn't pay attention to the spirits of the trees or the spirits of the forest. Because again, that would take away, you know, like worship from the emperor to other directions that were irrelevant for the state at the time. And I think I can really trace it to the to the seventies. I haven't found much before that. And the seventies, you have Iwata Kenji, as you mentioned, who becomes the leading intellectual in Japan who proposes this this kind of new interpretation of uh, of kami uh, as as spirits in in a very different and more encompassing way, and. Uh, and if you read these books uh, and books written by others, you know, uh, after him, it's really clear that you know they're no longer interested, of course, you know, with the emperor, with uh, with heroes and so forth. They are really interested in developing uh, like a, a cosmic spiritual vision in which nature becomes the locus of of the sacred and the divine, and uh, and the nature is envisioned as 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 uh, full with. Uh, spiritual uh, powers and, and agencies. And this is where the concept of animism comes in. It is Iwata and other, and other authors who are actually quoting, you know, the early uh, European anthropologists or ethnographers, right, who were introducing, you know, Tyler, for example, who were introducing the concept of animism. So they use, they appropriate that old and uh, obsolete concept of animism at the time, because no anthropologist would ever quote Tyler positively, right, uh, today. But in Japan, uh, that is seen as a, as a positive uh, Tyler and others, you know, Durkheim and, uh, you know, the Golden Bow, you know, all, all of these uh, classical, historical, uh, anthropological books are treated as as good examples of ways to address animism. So the Japanese adopt them and uh, and uh, and they try to formulate an alternative vision of the sacred in which these spirits belonging to things and natural entities and sometimes even people um, are part of the of the of the world in itself and uh, it was striking to me to see that a lot of the intellectuals write about uh, animism in the 70s, the 80s, all the way until today, they begin as kind of uh, left-wing authors who are trying to go beyond the insularity of Japan and the nationalism of of Japanese religious discourse. They go beyond it to Southeast Asia, to other parts of Asia. They establish these connections with the past. And, And that's a way for them to overcome the limitations of uh, past uh, state Shinto and create a, to create a more what they envision as a more peaceful and kind of international or transnational and at least not nationalistic vision of uh, of, of the sacred. Personally, I think that this is kind of um, a self-defeating attempt because again, by the fact that you emphasize um, the uniqueness of Japan in in grasping that spirituality and keeping that you know this kind of animistic outlook, uh, of course, you're emphasizing, I mean, you are creating a different type of a nationalist uh, discourse about Japan. But but still, um, the, the originality is there, you know, that these authors want to create a different idea of spirituality, 
that is no longer constrictive and uh, reactionary like it was in the recent past, and they use uh, these very archaic concepts, right, such as, you know, spirits and animism in particular. Oh, very interesting. And and um, these kinds of new framing, would you say that they're also part of a developing discourse known as Nihonjinron um, or Nihonbunkakuron? So these ideas that gave to early 20th century Japanese exceptionalism, especially when they reframe animism with regard to um, Taoism in other parts of Asia and South Asian folk traditions? Yeah, I think there is a component um, of, uh, like you said, of Nihon Jinron or Nihon Bunkaron. And I think it's up to the different authors, you know, to emphasize that aspect or not. But that is certainly part of it. And again, Nihon Jinron, I think originally starts in the, well, again, it has a longer history. But when it comes up in the the 70s and 80s, there already are two tendencies there. One is, again, to recuperate, you know, like pre-World War II nationalistic ideas about Japanese uniqueness and reframe them in a non, uh, let's say, controversial or maybe non-religious, non-state Shinto way. So this will be the kind of a right-wing interpretation of uh, Japanese exceptionalism. But um, you also have another component uh, in which... Um, Japanese culture is described as unique because of its peaceful nature, because of its openness to the outside, because of its interest for nature. So they're trying to use um, part of the uh, most, uh, I can call it, the most up-to-date public discourses of the 70s and the 80s, so like world peace, uh, nature, environmental concerns, and so forth, they're they're using it to try to describe what they think Japanese essence should be, right? So they're trying to take away, it's a paradoxical attempt, right, to to create a sense of national identity which goes beyond nationalism and this kind of a kind of world-encompassing or like kind of more cosmic in that sense. But like I said, I think that those two tendencies, one is which is kind of internationalist and left-wing and uh, environmental conscious and so forth, ultimately joins with... uh, with a more right-wing uh, perspective uh, that is centered on the Japanese, on, on, a, on a certain vision of Japanese uniqueness. And you find that, for example, in the, in the public statements of uh, the Japanese Association for Shinto Shrines, you know, the Jinja Honcho, which has fully accepted, you know, this kind of environmental concern for, for Japanese Shinto. And at that point, it's very hard to make, you know, distinction between, you know, the um, progressive left-wing intellectuals who proposed that discourse and these more conservative forces that are also using it. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Indeed, right? Um, It seems uh, from the edited volume that animism animism in Japan can be either uh, very conservative or progressive, um, like discussed in many chapters of the book, um, that it can also be used even to offer a consolatory antidote to personal and social issues, for example, in contemporary art. Yeah, that is true. So, uh, so that's also, I think, part of the productivity of the idea of you know animism or concepts of spirits, because, uh, like you said, you know they play different uh, functions, different roles for different people, in different social contexts. So, 
in terms of art, for example, it, it can be consolatory, but it can also be a way to explore different types of representations that you know have not been tried before. Um, in in terms of, um, but also in terms of like spiritual beliefs, I. I, I can understand why the idea that the dead are present and, you know, it's possible to interact with them even after, you know, they're no longer visible in physical form. I mean, I can see how that can be uh, a type of consolation, right? If you have a good relationship with them, of course, you know, if if death happens in a way that is not, I mean, there is no closure or it, um, it ends in, you know, a, de- a death that... Uh, um, was too sudden and, cre- and creates a lot of grief and so forth, then it can be more problematic because the fact that the, the dead are still there, you know, causes all kinds of anxiety, right? But in many cases, when death is just, you know, sad but normal occurrence and it's not, re- it's not really a, a total break, that, I think, can, can provide uh, consolation for those who believe that, right? Rather than the idea that the dead go to a distant paradise and, you know, they cannot be reached anymore until the end of times, or something like that. You know, the fact that the formerly living people are still with us in some form, and uh, and they look upon us and they help us, and we can talk to them. That that can be inspiring, I think. You know, to to, to some people. Yeah, certainly. Um, and from you know the, the vibrant and diverse discussions contained in the various chapters of this book, it's it's evident now that Japanese animism is anything but a single homogenous discourse, and it's, on the other hand, very very diverse. Um, so what stands out is also precisely this absence of a unified ontology about spirits and their agency, as argued um, in the book. However, um, some modern Japanese modern intellectuals such as uh, Minataka Kumagusu, um, um, an author that you have discussed in detail in Chapter 3, developed sophisticated ontologies for the invisible and its denizens. Can you tell us about um, how he formed his ontologies of the invisible empire and maybe their impact on contemporary Japanese beliefs and practices? Oh, yeah. Minakata, Minakata Kumagusu is an incredibly... Uh, interesting figure, and uh, it's too bad that uh, it's not studied much in the West. We don't have a- a- any books written. You know, we have a few chapters here and there, but uh, no books uh, about about his, his his work. He's an incredibly interesting intellectual. He's a he's a polymath. I mean, he's really a descendant of the of the scholars of the late Edo period. You know. Uh, were conversant in many different disciplines. I mean, Minakata, when he was a kid, he copied the Wakan Sansaizue, which is the most popular encyclopedia of East Asian knowledge uh, of the Edo period. So he was copying it, you know, the, 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 the copies that he made uh, by hand, of course, you know, are still, you know, existing. So, so he learned, you know, he had all these extremely broad and, uh, and, and interesting uh, interdisciplinary uh, education. Uh, and then he began to absorb, study uh, Western science, and and not only uh, it, it was a, it was a, like a, how can you call it? It was a, an expert on uh, slime molds, you know, like fungi, like mushroom, and but molds in particular, right? Um, which was kind of a developing uh, field at the time, and he becomes one of the leading international scholars, and he writes in English on and he publishes in. Uh, 
respected uh, journals, his, his findings, his discovering about, about molds. But, but, but he is also interested in folklore. He's interested in uh, the history of thought. He's interested in uh, Buddhism, uh, doctrines uh, of Buddhism, and, and all, all these kind of things. So it's not just a scientist, and it's not just a humanist. It's really a very interesting combination of the two. And uh, what uh, I don't think that he has, you know, going back to your your the, the final part of your question, I don't think that he has um, an impact on contemporary Japanese beliefs uh, as such. But Minakata, since the 80s, 1980s, has been rediscovered in Japan. And now is kind of a popular figure because there are several books written by very famous people uh, on, 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 his, on his figure. So a certain interpretation of Kumakata, uh, oh, sorry, of Minakata as, a, as an exceptional, you know, kind of a Japanese superhero uh, is still part of the cultural imagination. So I hope that, you know, his, his breath and uh, of of knowledge and this interdisciplinary outlook would inspire you know some people um, uh, from now on. But to go back to the originality of uh, Minakata's thought, so his attraction for slime molds, which you know most of us would just think as disgusting things, right, <laughs> um, uh, comes from the fact. I mean, he writes it he ri- uh, he himself. He says that you know the slime molds are not vegetal only, and they're not animal. They're kind of an intermediary liminal stage of life and uh, and this is in this kind of in liminal stage of life all kinds of possibilities and he also says that you know we, we with slime molds we can study uh, the development of life we can study all kinds of things that we cannot study with human beings for for example right because we cannot make experiments on them whereas slime molds uh, they the, uh, are are kind of a microcosm of what hap- of of a number of processes that happen in nature. For example, um, Minakata uh, emphasizing how slime mold, for example, uh, grows, becomes something else, comes you know completely different uh, formations, and then they die. But out of their death, a new slime molds are created, and the process is repeated, you know, uh, eternally. And and so this process, you know, one being becomes another one, and then it dies, and then it becomes another one, and then another one, and then it dies, and so forth. For him, is is really a, more than a metaphor. It's really kind of a a, a a direct representation of how life and death happen in reality. And then the next step is that Minakata uses this intuition, this understanding of the slime mold, in relation to the mandala of Shingon Buddhism. And he sees the two as two, uh, basically the same thing. The mandal itself, you know, is a representations of this continuous creation, transformation, destruction, creation, transformation, destruction that takes place in life. And uh, so some of it is visible, some of it is invisible. And, uh, and, uh, and Minakata tries to make sense of all of this, basically. So this is, I think, the fascinating aspect of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of Minakata. Uh, so what, what to me was very attractive is the fact that he clearly bases his um, understandings and his argumentation. He, he bases it both on contemporary Western science of the time, of course, and a deep understanding of Shingon doctrines and theology. It's not like some contemporary authors uh, yeah, who are very popular today and write about animism, 
they read a simple book about Kukai, right? And they and they make up an entire argument based on nothing because again, that's not exactly what Kukai said. But uh, so it's a very superficial use of Japanese tradition. But in the case of uh, Minakata, I mean, he had a deep understanding of that, and he was constantly exchanging his ideas with uh, with the learned uh, Shingon monk and Doki Horyu, who is a very very important figure in uh, in early phase of Japanese modernization. So he was in constant contact with uh, with Doki for for many many years, and they were wrote they were writing like very long. Uh, letters to each other, like entire chapters, basically, <laughs> about doctrinal issues and all kinds of things. So, so this use, okay, this deep knowledge about the Japanese intellectual tradition, Shingon in particular, and uh, the deep knowledge of the new Western science combining one figure, trying to create a different metaphysics, right? A different philosophy of reality, to me, is deeply fascinating. And I think I kind of regret, personally, the fact that that attempt was not really pursued. Because then in Japan, they decided, you know, they cannot keep both of them together. So they decided to go only for the Western uh, part of it. Yeah, this is incredibly fascinating. Also, this modern, um, you know, newfound interest in Japanese esoteric uh, Buddhism, Mikyo, right, and, and Shingon. And, and you also talked about something that is called the Minakata's Mandala. Mm-hmm. Is that um, sort of a way to that people um, in Japan have been um, categorizing or summarizing his ideas and philosophies? Yeah, well, Minakata, he wrote, see, in his letters to Doki and other people, he, were inclu- he was including all kinds of uh, scribbles and drawings. And uh, there are two or three uh, diagrams that uh, he calls them mandala, but they're not Minakata mandala. Minakata mandala is something that was called, you know, by, by Nakamura Hajime, apparently, you know, the famous Buddhologist, when uh, when he was showed, you know, the, the, this diagram, say, oh, wow, this is uh, Minakata. Minakata's mandala, but he was trying to to make, to represent in a diagram uh, these incredibly complicated processes of uh, life creation and transformation. So, for example, one of them uh, includes uh, basically the, the most famous one um, is is um, a description of reality on the one hand and uh, human attempts at understanding reality. So. He sees, uh, Minakata sees reality as articulated on different levels. There are, you know, the, the most obvious one, the real one, the most direct one. And then there are some, like, more remote uh, dimensions of reality, which he calls uh, fushigi, you know, the, uh, like, more wondrous. And, uh, and, and so the wonder of mind, because we don't really know how the mind works, so Minakata knows that it's there, but, you know, it can only be approximated very roughly. And then uh, there is... a uh, the wonder of principles. Again, we can make hypotheses about the principles of nature, but we don't really know what they are. So, you know, they're kind of further away in our epistemological field, right? Because we can know what is very close to us, but not what is very far away. And then the final one, you know, the final horizon of knowledge is the what he calls the Dainichi no Rai, you know, Dai Fushigi, you know, the great wonder of the cosmic Buddha, Mahavirochana, Dainichi which uh, is really kind of a hypothetical framework that includes and encompasses all possible knowledge in, in the universe. So in that sense, he was making a, um, 
an, an argument. He was using this idea of Dainichi Nyorai as the Dharmakaya, right, as the ultimate essence of reality, as the ultimate epistemological boundary or limit for, for humans to know. And to me, I mean, this is, this is an interesting transposition. It's not completely wrong. I mean, in fact, it's quite accurate in terms of Shingon uh, metaphysics, I think. But what is interesting is that, again, he's not quoting medieval authors, he's applying this Shingon metaphysics to contemporary epistemology and contemporary science. And this is really fascinating. Is He's certainly a very original and unique intellectual. And lastly, um, we've come to around 40 minutes. Um, can you maybe um, speak a little bit about the theoretical methods or approaches that are taken in, in the edited volume? Um, you, you kind of mentioned that um, the volume takes an ontologically oriented approach about animism and highlights uh, especially the agency of the intangible. Um, can you maybe elaborate on this a little bit and how they would contribute to our understanding of Japanese spirituality? Well, yes. Um, well, I, I would say maybe it would be more accurate to say that most authors actually, uh, so the authors deal, I mean, they have their own, their own methodology. Some of them are more so- sociological, other are more like informed by literary criticism. But the anthropologists in them and some of the intellectual historians also um, are kind of following this new trend in, uh, in anthropology, which is, you know, the ontologically oriented approach uh, to animism, which tends to see invisible entities or immaterial entities as endowed on their own ontology. And uh, the idea is that these entities cannot be just discounted as figments of imagination or superstitions or, you know, the, the fact that the natives don't really know Western science and therefore, you know, they come up with this kind of ludicrous descriptions of reality. Part of the interest of this new attempt is that, first of all, to some people, at least, uh, these entities are real. So they have an ontological ground to them. Whether we agree with them or not is a different issue. But, you know, I... As, as an outsider, I cannot say that I know more than them, right? So I think I should take their ontologically grounded arguments about, you know, what these entities are and what they do. I should take it, you know, for what it is, right, seriously, and try to make sense of it. This is one aspect. The other aspect is that a lot of these entities are experienced by people through the effects that they have. So there is a there is a chapter that talks about you know how people feel you know in specific places that are haunted or you know they are believed to have uh, spiritual presences in them. So the fact that they feel something in their body, I mean that is a physical thing. You know, it's not just made up. I mean, a lot of these things can be fake, of course. You know, people can say that they feel something where they don't, but in many cases, I mean, the, the, there is something going on there. I. Honestly, personally, I don't believe in the existence of spirits, but I don't have the instruments to disprove it either, right, like most of us. So I think that the only sensible way uh, to deal with these things is to take them seriously as the informants do and try to make sense of the rea- of, of, of what, you know, of this aspect of reality. So intangibles, spiritual entities have agency because they are believed uh, to do so, and um, and these agencies, I think, need to be understood and described. 
And I think that this is something that is lacking in uh, contemporary Japanese descriptions about animism. Because people will tell you that, oh yeah, there are spirits and spirits do this and that. Or they say, oh yes, uh, the Japanese are animists because they believe that, um, I don't know, rocks can have a spirit. But they don't tell me what the spirit is or what it does. Whether the spirit has a kind of a rational uh, outlook or whether the spirit is completely rational and uh, unfathomable and so forth. So, you know, I think we need this kind of theology of spirits to make more sense of, uh, of what they are, you know, within the culture and how they operate. So I think that this is, uh, this, this approach to animism, which has been used by anthropologists for, for quite some time now, uh, anthropologists uh, mostly working on Africa and South America, where uh, discourses about spirits are very important. Uh, so I think it's interesting that this tendency is now also expanding uh, towards uh, Japanese studies and the study of Japanese religions. So I would like to encourage you know this, this further collaboration. In fact, it's quite interesting. You know, when you read books about spirits, sometimes uh, some of them are anthologies, right, of, of chapters dealing. Uh, with spirits in different cultures, they never mention Japan, right? It's Africa, it's the Caribbean, it's South America. And in a way, Japan is the most important animistic country in the world. So it's kind of interesting that people are ignoring, anthropologists are ignoring it in many, in many ways. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but you know, that, that's not really, when you think of animism or this kind of ontological oriented animism, you don't think about Japan, you think about South America or, uh, you know, the African religions in the Atlantic and, and so forth. Great. Thank you. And I urge our listeners to um, get a copy of the edited volume and get a closer look at these really refreshing perspectives. Well, uh, Professor Rambelli, we've taken up a lot of your time, actually, and thank you so much for sharing your incredible research and um, all the contributors' research in the edited volume with us. Before we conclude our interview, could you maybe tell us about your current research projects? What have you been working on recently? Oh, recently I've been working on, uh, it's a very different project from this one, uh, although it is partly related to it. It's uh, the cultural history of uh, Japanese musical instrument. It's a very elusive instrument that is only used in the court, uh, the, the music for the imperial court um, and at Shinto shrines. And it's called the show. It's a mouth organ. It's a very ancient instrument still existing uh, in Japan today. And what fascinates me about the instrument is not only the sound, of course, and the, and the techniques involved in it, but um, it's the kind of uh, the agency, the materiality of the instrument and the agency that it has, and the legends uh, that were circulating about the you know, kind of power that this instrument uh, was supposed to have. So in a way, it is a continuation of my work on materiality and also you know, my work on the spirits here, but it's more focused on one particular uh, object, again, a musical instrument, which also opens you know, the entire, you know, entire conversation about the materiality or immateriality of music, uh, the philosophy of music, you know, the, the, the meaning of music and so forth. But maybe we can keep that for a, for a future conversation. Certainly. Well, that sounds like a great project. I think um, our listeners uh, will be certainly looking forward to it. And finally, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed reading the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and uh, for 
you know, making me part of this very, very interesting conversation.